side of plastic surgery. I'm your host, Catherine Maley, author of Your Aesthetic Practice, What Your Patients Are Saying, and consultant to plastic surgeons to get them more patients and more profits. Now, today's is a very special guest. It's Dr. Ed Williams. He's a facial plastic surgeon, and since 1999, he's been in private practice in upstate New York in a cute town called Latham, which is in Albany which happens to be the capital of New York. So he also has locations in Manhattan, Saratoga Springs, and the Virgin Islands. So he's grown his main practice into 22,000 square foot facility with four surgeons, 75 staff, a surgical center, hair center, and med spa. Now, I've known Dr. Williams for years. He has shared the podium, or I've shared the podium with him um, at medical conferences since he's well-known for his business acumen in running a successful eight-figure practice with lots of moving parts. Now, as a matter of fact, I used to run a course with him called the Master's Academy of Surgeons, where Dr. Williams was the professor. And together, we taught the business and marketing side of plastic surgery to surgeons who were interested in scaling their practice and setting themselves up for a profitable exit. So Dr. Williams has served on many medical society committees. He's also past president of the American Academy of Facial, Plastic, and Reconstructive Surgeons. He's also an author of his own consumer book for rhinoplasty, and he's got another book, and he's got his own podcast and consulting services for surgeons, and it's called The White Coat Entrepreneur, which I think is a brilliant name. Anyway, welcome to Beauty and the Beast, Dr. Williams. It is a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, Catherine. And um, just a, a couple minor corrections. So I went to practice in 92, but I built oh. this, I built a facility in 98 uh, around that time frame, and uh, we've got actually five uh, core physicians, and we have one joining us in July full time, and another one in July twenty three. So we'll have, we'll be up to seven. So, um, but I've made every mistake out there. So I, I like to, I like to share, and I love this stuff, as you know, because you and I've spent a lot of time teaching together, and um, mainly because I learn, you know, at every juncture, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so I'm excited. I'm excited. It's for a long you. story, but could you just give like everyone loves to hear? How do you get from like residency, fellowship, private, growing? Like, what was your journey to get where you got to today? Uh, well, in the beginning, so you know, I, I don't want to bore you with residency stories and, and you know, and fellowship, but I I wanted to do a, a fellowship. I was interested in rhinoplasty and. Uh, so I did a facial plastic fellowship in Chicago and I wanted to come back East because my family was on the East coast and I was a skier and obviously I'd, you know, be out in the Midwest or out in the West somewhere skiing, but my family was here. Um, and so I, I looked for a town. I basically was pretty, pretty neurotic. I got a map out and found out, went to the library. No one does that anymore, but I found out where there were plastic surgeons and facial plastic surgeons. Um, back then. And, and I needed to have a town where I could be involved with a residency program. And, uh, you know, for some reason I knew from day one, um, being in, I felt, I felt very secure in my training, I guess too, which is important because, uh, you know, sometimes I encourage people to take a, take a stint in a university for four or five years where they just get, you know, work their ass off and get blood and guts all over them and, and really become better surgeons. But, um, I just, I knew that I wanted my autonomy, I guess. And, um, 
and was willing to take the risk and whether it was brilliant or, 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 um, crazy, I, I'm not really sure, but it, it worked for me, but things were definitely different back then. I mean, we really didn't have, you know, aesthetic, there was no non-surgical, so we had skin cancer, um, and sewing lacerations and trauma. So I went out on my own and, you know, I went to a town where, uh, I didn't realize this, but there was an eight person plastic surgery group that had probably, I think it was the oldest in the country at that point. And, um, they had it out for me. So it wasn't easy. It was not easy to start at all. Um, they were, I mean, there were some goofy things like the bylaws in any of the major hospitals. You had to be in practice for two years in good standing before you could get on the call schedule. Well, how do you start, you know, as a young person? And, you know, I walked the ERs every morning and every night. I, you know, I would go at the beginning of the shift and go at the end of the shift. Um, and, you know, slowly the phone would ring. Um, I'd go visit 10 dermatologists and one or two of them would send me patients, you know, and they'd take a try and, um, you know, they would be happy, I guess. And, um, but a lot of people were not really, you know, weren't really interested in, in the new guy. There, there wasn't Instagram and there wasn't marketing at all, really. There wasn't even, there weren't even websites. I mean, <laughs> you know, people had fax machines, so it really does sound like dark ages, but you know, it's the same no matter whether it's 2022 or whether it's, you know, 1992, 30 years ago, it's really all the same stuff because I talked to a lot of young folks who, um, so I, I believed in myself. I, I, I grew up in a small family, you know, business. I, my, my, my dad was the only one who was educated from college, from high school, that is of seven. So there were no professionals in my family. It was really blazing, um, a new educational trail, if you will. And then, um, you know, I started to get a revenue. I lived very conservatively in the early years because I knew my end game was to continue to just reinvesting in the practice. And I, it's interesting. I was in practice 10 years and I remember meeting with the financial people and I think they were kind of shocked how little I had in security assets, you know, I, because I had it all invested in the business and real estate and everything else. But, um, and then eventually started to, to, you know, took care of the business. It started to take care of me. Um, but that was, you know, years later. So I don't know, that's kind of the short version of it. Um, yeah. And well, every time I, I took how did a, you get, yeah, what possessed you to build a 22,000 square foot facility? I've been there. It's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But when, how, how, how long were you in practice before you decided to do that? Cause that was a big jump. So I started in 1992 and I, broke ground in 97. So I was, I was definitely on the fast track. Um, uh, again, maybe it was reckless. I, I'm not really sure, but you know, the, the, the building in the real estate was probably one of the best decisions I ever made at the time. My wife will tell you, I lost a lot of sleep over it. I, you know, would get up in the middle of the night and pace. So I was 37, 38 years old when I, when I made that, um, you know, when I made that decision. Um, and it's, it's like, you, you know, when you commit to something, you have to make it work. Right. So I did it at a, at a young, at a young age. And so, um, yeah. So was the intent to grow your practice to fit a 22,000 square foot facility, or were you just going to practice on one floor and rent out the others? Like what was your thought process or your business model? No, that's a good question. So, um, I wanted to maximize the real estate. 
I knew I wasn't going to occupy it um, by myself. If we, meaning I put a surgery center in and my practice was over 50% of the building, you get more uh, favorable interest rates because it's owner occupied. Okay. My plan was to slowly grow, to rent out the other space to help cover the mortgage and then to slowly grow into the building. And um, we now, uh, we now occupy the entire building. So, and that's just really the last, it's a, you know, John Wayne said once there's no such thing as a, you know, shortcut to a 20 year success. And I, I remind some of the younger um, folks that because I didn't have money, I didn't have family money. I, it, well, nothing was given to me except, uh, you know, add a boy and a kick in the ass. Um, but uh, I, I <clears throat> my plan was, and we did, I mean, just this past year, we finally have taken over the entire building. Um, so that's kind of cool. Um, but that was my plan. I, I needed something to, if, if I figured if I made it just, you know, if I had help with it, I could always grow into it. And that's really what I did. I, I rented out, uh, actually I rented out half of the building, um, initially. Um, uh, there was a laser, it was called gimbal vision, a laser vision center that went in two or three years after I was in the building and, uh, that space was empty. They took over the space and they went, you know, they went bankrupt in two years and left me with a whole build out. So I was, and that's when I first broke off uh, nurses and nurse injectors and started our rejuva center. So that was in 2002 or three. I was one of the first people in the country to have nurse injectors back then, but I figured, okay, I got to take over this space. I got to do something with it. And I realized by separating the business model, by having them separated, you could have your own team, strategic planning, and you've heard all my, you know, my stuff on, oper- on how to scale up your operations, but I knew that it, I could be more successful if we focused just on that. And so that has actually grown, you know, separately on its own parallel track. But in the beginning, it was just kind of coincidence. The other floors in the building I rented out, uh, I did have one plastic surgeon that took a, took space. Um, I had family doc. I had a, a woman who does hair extensions and all kinds of things like that. And some of the space, uh, one was a laser hair removal. Uh, they were there for about three or four years and then they went bankrupt and left us with space. So it wasn't all rosy. Um, you know, the surgery center was one of our, is one of our tenants and we've had a couple, we're doing great with the surgery center now, but we've had a couple rough years with that too. So I don't want to paint a picture that it was rosy. I mean, anytime someone sees reward, they've usually taken risk somewhere. And honestly, the, First conversations I have with people that I bring on board, you know, colleagues, uh, associates who end up eventually being partners is, um, you know, what we have is not broken. So unless you want to write it, you know, write me a big check, I get to make the decisions. Um, But I talk about risk because it's, I get, gosh, I get weekly, Catherine, I get phone calls. How do you bring someone on board? And you and I both know 95% 95% of us fail at that, or maybe, maybe it's a hundred. I don't really know many people. I mean, I don't know anyone who's, who's got this many people on board and they're all, by the way, that's the challenge you have is when you bring really good people. Cause I'm not, I'm not looking for the biggest group. I want all rock stars. And with rock mm-hmm. stars, you got rock star personalities, you know, but I always had this vision and that's why we're right here by the airport of, of building a destination practice. And we are, you know, 
the, the percentage gets, you know, larger and larger that people come from a distance now. But that was always kind of my vision. You get a bunch of rock stars, each specializing in one place, and then you have an economy of scale that we have now. I mean, when you were here last time, we certainly, we've completely renovated the building now, but we certainly didn't have the team. I mean, I've got an accounting team. I got a, a full-time CF, CP, CFO. Um, I got a you know, full-time person here in, in, as far as business development, in addition to Susan Sullivan. She just does operations. So we've really built uh, now with an economy of scale, which allows us to do things at a higher level. Uh, and I learned that from a buddy of mine who I went, you know, it was in about 90, um, about 2005. I went with, he ran a publicly traded company. I learned a lot of lessons from him. And I was hanging out at the track because they sponsored, uh, at Saratoga Raceway, they sponsored one of the races. And I met his management team, his CFO. I met his uh, person who was in charge of his M&A, his merger acquisitions, uh, his HR person. And I was like, wow, imagine if I had a team like that, how effective I could be. And it made me you know, realize the benefit of having an economy of scale and upping your talent and building a team. That was a real epiphany for me. And so it, it was a long process. It didn't happen overnight. Well, I think the doctors, you know, I, I talked to an awful lot of surgeons and they like what comes first, you know, they're, they're very risk adverse naturally. Right. And they think, boy, because the whole point is to run your practice like a business and a business has people in charge of the profit centers and you're not running the whole show. But number one, you have to let go of control. <laughs> number two, you still have to manage it or lead it. Um, and then number three, you've got to get the right people. And then, but then the doctors are thinking, how am I going to pay all these people? Like they're not even revenue generators. They're like, they're important people for business. And until you can figure, like, look at that and say, but they're leaving you more time to do what you need to do to grow the practice. Can You're you absolutely right. on that? Like, how did you scale without fearing you can't pay for all of this? Well, I did it slowly, but, but you're, you're absolutely right. Because I talked, I, you know, I, I talk about this on my podcast too. I think the physicians are almost set up for failure here. Um, by the very nature that they made it through plastic surgery or facial plastic surgery. And at the top of their game, they have an ego and you can't build a very successful team. If you've got an ego, it's just that simple. Right. I mean, you look at the best CEOs, you look at like Jim Collins work, you know, great by choice or built to last or, uh, you know, good to great. yeah, good to great, which is probably, probably my favorite book. Yeah. Um, and I reference it all the time. These level five leaders, um, have humility and they realize the importance of the team. We learn going through our training that we learn to be individualists and we learn to be independent. We learn not to lean on people. We go to the emergency room in the middle of the night and someone's bleeding all over and, you know, God forbid you get somebody to help you. So you learn how to like, you know, open up the instrument pack with your feet and, you know, and so we learn to survive as individual individuals. And then, you know, because I, I get friends of mine call me all the time. So like, I want to bring some, I want to bring on a plastic surgeon. I know you've done this. How do you do it? I said, you got, you know, you got, a, you got several hours, first of all. And I, there aren't enough hours for me to be on the phone because I could tell people that are just not coachable, right? 30 to 40% of the physicians I talk to are not even coachable. Um, and they don't realize it and they don't want to hear it. But if their ego gets in the way, 
if they're not willing to give things up, they're not willing to share equity, um, play by the same rules. This is another big one I see all the time. You know, you know, Dr. Joe Smith um, has been in practice 12 years. He's starting to do well, you know, but he wants more time off. Um, and so he wants to bring someone on. Well, no one, no rock star is going to come on, take all the junk you don't want. And by the way, your practice now is a lifestyle business. You know, I don't know if you know what the difference is. You probably do because you're a business person. But a lot of physicians, when I say that, they're like, what do you mean? I said, are you growing a business to have a business, to have assets and have profit, uh, you know, rev, an ROI, you know, even do you have income at the end? Do you have profit at the end that's worth something? Or do you have a lifestyle business? Are you living off your business? And, and I dare to say, most physicians say they're in practice for 12 years and they're very successful. You know, they, they're overexpensing things. They're, and so now they bring someone else on board. You have to live by those same rules, right? That you can't expect them to come on and be partner. And by the way, you're living, you know, you're living off the business. And, and it's, it's hard to break that mindset especially someone. And by the way, I'm no, we're no different than any other small business people. You know how many small business people, their business is a lifestyle business. They have no real intention to grow it, to sell it or to, to, or to divest it. In fact, so many small business people get to that ripe age and all of a sudden they realize their business isn't worth anything because they haven't set it up to sell it. I don't know if that answers your question. I know it's a little long winded. Uh, well, talking about scaling, the only way you can get out of being the only service provider, because that's the problem. You're the service provider and it takes you to be that. So how do, how do you scale? Well, you open up different profit centers, which is what you did, or you bring on partners. But do you bring them on as a partner? Are you better off starting off as I don't know, an associate and seeing how it works out. Yeah, like absolutely. What, you can't you've been through a lot board. of that. Like what's, what's your best bet to bring somebody else on board? So the first, there's two kind of two parts to that. Um, I have, as you know, I've got a, a, a chief operating officer, someone who runs in, in the problem. Cause I actually got buddies of mine who are trying to do the same thing with law firms. Um, if you are still a technician, which I am, um, that takes a lot of your time. Um, Unless, you know, there's some people that don't want to be doctors and surgeons. I still really enjoy, you know, I still really enjoy that part of my life. And you can't do that. And then, by the way, here's the other thing is we devalue the importance of running the business. You know, we want to do it at five o'clock in the afternoon, you know, when we're exhausted. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking to you in the middle of the day. It's noon. here, But I put this in the schedule a month ago and I'm going to make time because this is a priority. Most of us, God forbid, we take time for meetings during the day. Now, the other option is to run your family ragged, you know, and not be present in home at night or on the weekends, which you know how I feel about that, right? We've talked about it. I don't even want to do, I don't even want to have a phone call after, you know, after six o'clock at night because, you know, I, I can't be on, on, my, on my A game. So that's the first part of it is you have, and this is, this is where there's two parts to this too, because so many doctors, they bring their you know, spouses in to run the business because they're too damn cheap to pay a real, a real operations person. Okay. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. And then the other, or they just don't want to, they don't want to spend the money to bring someone in. You're never, so I, I live, my mantra, what I live by is if there's somebody that can do something 80% as well as I can do it, it's time for me to move on and surgery included, by the way. So, you know, and that's what I struggle with right now because, you know, I'm 62. I've worked very hard to be in a position where I don't need to work. I'm there. 
But walking away from surgery is really hard. It's really hard if you, it takes you a long time to get good at it. So making, having the discipline to invest in people and, you know, have the conversations, being able to hold them accountable respectfully so that they, you know, you don't just go out and here's the other problem. Doctors say, I need a COO. Okay. And rather than really vet the heck out of it, slow to hire, which is, you know, Jack Welch. They go out and they hire someone and it doesn't work out in six months and they're because they're a freaking hot mess and they didn't do it correctly. Doctors want to solve problems. How do you solve a problem? You solve it quickly. You know, we're used to being, being surgeons. That's not the way to hire. So you have, a, you know, you have a couple failures there. But if you have that right person, then you can go to the next level. Does that make sense? So um, and rather than, you know. And I, you know, what blows my time because you know this, you and I've had this conversation. I have a lot of friends in real estate. I have a lot of friends in insurance. They spend a ton of money on personal and professional development. Okay. I spend a ton of money on personal and professional development. I know you do too. Okay. God forbid doctors spend a few dollars. I have a guy that's on a retainer. I meet with him once a month. I have, I can, you know, all the different things I can do. I mean, I, you do the same thing, but physicians yeah. don't value this stuff. They think it's beneath them. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but the, this is the single most important thing is that is switching your mindset back and forth from being a surgeon to a business person and realizing that you can't do it all. Um, so when you bring that person on uh, again, and, and to me, if you look at the ideal team, you've got a person who's in charge of development, growing our business. We have someone now. You met, maybe you've met Monique. She's a rock star. Mm-hmm. She's got a BS in neuroscience and an MBA, and she's smart as hell. That's her job. And so you, if you start to say, okay, what could I achieve to? And then know you have to do it slowly. But rather than, an old timer told me this, if you take care of the business, it will take care of you. And that's kind of where I'm where I'm at, instead of going out and buying a new Mercedes, Ed Williams gets jacked up or uh, here's a better one. I'm going to go buy a, 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 you know, some new piece of technology that conveniently price is priced around a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know what? I, I get excited when I hire a rock star mm-hmm. on our team. So I invest in people, but again, back, go back to Jim Collins. I invest in the people and make at a place where they want to be and that they win when we win versus, you know, buying more toys. For sure. Um, while we're on the subject of staff, you are very good at setting up a culture. And um, when I consult with practices, I think the culture thing confuses them. Like, what do you mean? What's, it you know, what's culture? Um, that that's so becomes so important, especially for somebody like you who isn't afraid to add 75 staff. Now, most of my audience is cringing right now at uh, managing 75 staff. But um, the, the, the mind shift change that, or the mindset shift you have to make is staff is not an overhead expense. Staff is an asset. You're absolutely um, right. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. I can. You, you know, um, it, it it is a mindset because most of us say, okay, I'm making all the revenue and you yeah. all people are taking it from me. Yeah. Right? So investing in the people. Now, 
the late Herb Keller, who was the CEO of Southwest for many years, um, who founded Southwest. And he's got an amazing and fascinating story. He says there's three roles of the CEO. And I, I recite it so frequently and my team gets tired of hearing it. But number one, people have to under, see your vision. For me, it's putting a world-class practice together and a destination practice with super specialized people. Okay, number two, how you make money. You got to tell your people how to make money. You know, my, my management team, there's four or five of them. They see the numbers. Doctors won't take their class. They are afraid to show the numbers to their people. Okay. And then third, and, and probably the most important thing is create the culture. That is the number, the three most important things of the CEO vision, tell your people how you make money and then creating your culture. Now, I got to tell you, when I read a lot of uh, Vern Harnish's work, uh, Rockefeller Habits, on you know creating a culture, uh, fifteen years ago, it's 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 I can understand why most physicians have a hard time getting this in their head because I did too. Uh, what do you mean? I, that sounds kind of corny. I mean, what do you mean? I got to, you know, create. So how do you create a culture? It's by every single day, everything you do is deliberate and intentional. I'll give you an example. Our culture here is, you know, we have our motto is the Williams Center taking care of each other and you. And we do that. And we, and we live it and we breathe it and we talk about it. Okay. At the huddles in the morning, if somebody, you know, is an example of our culture, we should, we, you know, they bring it up. My managers do. Do you know yesterday, Brianna, uh, you know, so-and-so broke down in the Northway. She drove up there herself, used her AAA card and got their tire fixed because they don't have AAA. Okay. That's a true story. And, 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 you know, I just want you to know, Brianna, you know, I mean, that's exactly who we are. And I just want you, kudos to you. So it's, it's, and then when you hire people, and so again, our, our motto is William Center taking care of each other, you, and our part of our culture is we have a culture of winning and accountability, frank, brutal honesty in reality and having the difficult conversations with people in a structured manner, whether it's coaching or whether it's my, my monthly meeting with the managers where we talk about these things. And I ask them, because I know that they've done their coaching. And when I ask them, and I, I you know, get the whole structure, you know, but I, I'm just jumping around. But if if the, if my manager knows that I'm going to say, who did you coach this month? And she says, Brittany. And I say, okay. And, uh, you know, what is she struggling with? You know, what does she think that we, we, we should do as a business? Where does she think we're leaving my money on the table? What's the biggest frustration? They know I'm asking those questions every month. Do you think they're going to show up and not coach somebody that month? Mm-hmm. And so what do I mean by winning and accountability? That's the winning and accountability. You know, you help us grow our culture and put it to the bottom line. You're going to get rewarded. And mm-hmm. we, and now because we have an economy scale and we have a, a very significant, you know, profit EBITDA at the bottom line, we handed out some huge bonuses this year and or 2021. And, that's because it's tied to profitability for, so that's, that's our culture. You show up and win, you know, 
you know, you let me hold you accountable. You, and by the way, if people are not part of our culture, they don't last. And there's a guy by the name of Ray Dalio, who's a, <clears throat> he just wrote a book called uh, Principles. And I read it over the Christmas break and I, I couldn't put it down. Guys, one of the hundredth, hundred most influential people in the world. Okay. One of the fifth largest um, private companies in the world and one hundredth wealthiest people. You probably know who he is. Blackstone. Yeah. So, and uh, Bridgewater, not Blackstone, but he, uh, but anyway, my new mantra is if, if people aren't part of our vision, okay. And they're here for just a paycheck, get rid of them. And that is your culture. So when, when people know that if they deliver, they're going to be rewarded and it's talked about on the, you know, at the interview, it's talked about at the huddles, it's talked about at our meetings with brutal honesty, which Mm -hmm. is you can't do at four o'clock in the afternoon when you're exhausted. And so the mindset change really for the physician is to become a deliberate, deliberately become a business person. But I got to tell you, culture is a really hard thing to wrap your head around because it requires mm-hmm. being brutally, brutally honest with each other. We, listen, we all have things we struggle with, right? We're not good at everything. Let's talk about it. You know, let's, you know, let's do an assessment and find out what Catherine struggles at and build it. And, um, but that's, you know, I read this once and I, I believe it now. When people start to refer to your culture as almost a cult, mm-hmm. you win. You're, you're there. And, yeah. and, and, and I do believe that now because I think our culture now is, is stronger than ever. We, we, we have, I mean, it's kind of corny, but we're like a hot place to work. People want to be here. Mm-hmm. I've had people say to me, take a job at the front desk and say to me, I just wanted to get my foot in the door there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is probably the most difficult thing to do because it doesn't come naturally to those of us who are individualists and performers and have learned to do it ourselves because we don't understand how important that team is. Well, talking about the team, we have to talk about how you're motivating them and especially with bonuses. And one thing that gets all convoluted is when you have the closer, the coordinator who is the closer. Mm-hmm. Um, she had that position happens to become this um, us and them kind of thing. Like, uh, like she's bringing it and nobody else is, but it takes a team to do that. You have been very good about building the team culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are not directly compensated for their productivity. They work together as a team, but then they don't know what their bonus is going to be. But then I think to myself, but you know what? That's not the right culture for you. If I'm money motivated and I come in and I want to know if I sell this for you, what do I get? Mm-hmm. Like, then I wouldn't be a good fit for your culture. Like, can you talk, speak yes. on that? Because yes, that's a big yep. deal. No, no, I can, I can sir, absolutely speak on it. So first of all, any problem or challenge you have in one business has been solved in another industry already. Can we agree? Yeah. Right. So all I did was steal ideas from other people. Right. Okay. So you made reference to uh, performance models. I believe, so our senior people have a performance model that is a very nice base salary. 
and they are tied to the increase in the profitability of the business that they are involved with. Okay. Mm-hmm. Our highest level people who are cross over all the businesses, like for example, Susan or our CFO, they mm-hmm. had the same thing, but overseeing all businesses. Mm-hmm. As you come down, the position and the skills become different. Our patient concierge, for example, if you, by the way, the, the, the personality of a salesperson is very different than a personality of a nurse. Can we agree on that? Yes. Nurses and the culture of nur- nursing is not to want their hand out for a tip. Okay. In fact, I've had nurses who come to interview and they were somewhere else and they were used to getting tips. I won't hire them. I mean, because they're not part of our culture, you know, so the nursing and the medical team is um, when you're delivering care is different. However, the skills that it takes to sell. And if you want more sales, you hire more and better salespeople. They will chase a dollar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our patient concierge have a nice base and then they get a small percentage, which they know that number, by the way. So this is different okay. than the nurse injectors. We're going to talk about them too. Um, a, a very small percentage of, of what they see over a certain revenue number. Okay. For the year. And that's distributed quarterly and we hold back some and we give it at the end. My point for telling you is that nine, a big part of the salary is not the percentage piece. Because then it becomes a fee split if it's ever questioned by uh, OPMC. The other problem is um, I have had made this mistake where I have patient concierge or patient care coordinators who are like, you know, I generated $100,000 this week. And we, that's, here's a correction. Okay. No, 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 no. I had this, I had this, one of our patient, and I said, no, you didn't. We did as a team. Mm -hmm. Everybody from the front desk. So, and the minute they start to feel that they're indispensable, you need to get another one in there. And that is what we do, that balancing act. We never get anyone become indispensable. So they know what they, they know. And they, and the other, we actually just introduced this issue. We started to notice that the patient concierge were becoming a little too individual, you know, mm-hmm. on their own. Mm-hmm. So then we put another layer in for them to cooperate with, with each other. And it's not a ton of money, but it's enough that they know that if the phone call comes, it's a, that's not Patty's patient. That's, you know, it's our patient. It's part of the team. On nurse injectors, um, what, I, what I've indicated to you is that we pay them. I have found, and, I, and I, listen, I've got people who have been with me for 20 years, 22 years, you know. So, and we have a lot of longevity in our staff here, which, you know, I mean, that's the biggest I hear this all over. I don't know what you're doing there. I can't keep people. You know what the problem is? They they hire people too quickly. They train them too mm-hmm. quickly. And they expect them <clears throat> to solve their problem and be everything. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they hired the wrong person. Yeah. They, they hired too quickly. So <clears throat> if you get that right person, you bring them on. They're part of the culture. Then you, you know, when after they start to become trained, we want you to understand we pay attention to the numbers. And we, we see what you're doing and whatever. And they we don't tell them exactly what, but they do get quarterly bonuses. And they know those numbers. They're tied to their productivity. Um, the managers do see all the profit, loss, and balance sheets of the business. I've learned you can't show everybody because the you know hourly 
front desk person or even one of the nurses, they see these numbers and they think they're huge numbers. In reality, they don't know what the expenses are, you know. So I'm very transparent with our with our partners. I'm very mm-hmm. transparent transparent with the management team. We even had someone who was are <clears throat> uh, running all our marketing, and we had to. We just decided that, you know, she wasn't someone we wanted to see the numbers because, you know, in her mind, it's like, oh my god, I'm worth a lot of money. You know, um, it's I, I can't say I have the answer for all of that, but what we are doing works, and I am I am a- absolutely opposed to an arrangement where you know the nurse. By the way, it's illegal. You know, I can pay an MD. 20% of gross on injectables or 35% of net on, uh, gross on surgery. You can do that. But, and, and, and it blows my mind when I have arguments with colleagues of mine and they disagree with me and they say, no, cause it's not Medicare. It doesn't matter. Go look it up in the American college of surgeon revenue sharing with a non-physician is unethical. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in state of New York, it's considered medical, medical misconduct. And let me tell you, you do not want OPMC banging at your door. They're worse than malpractice. So I don't profess to have all the answers, but I do know what we do works. But part of this is it comes with the conversations. It comes with the conversations and the sit downs. And if there's one thing I do better than we ever have done, (coughs) excuse me, in the past is communication. Every time we have a problem, one of the businesses starts to run off track a little. I realize that communication has been slipping. You know, uh, whether it's the it's the manager's meetings and I'm not rolling up my sleeves and digging up or, you know, digging, digging, digging deep enough. But uh, I, I'm sorry to go on, but it, it's not like a one size fits all kind of thing. But I I do believe, like I said, our, our managers received some hefty bonuses this year. Um, and I can talk to you about this offline a little bit more, but um but I have no problem with that because they are the ones dealing with the headaches. They're the ones dealing with this one called in. And so the way we deal with that, because this is, this is the, you know, a nurse comes and says, you know, I, I know that because they all talk, right? So, well, let me ask you something. So are you, you know, are you looking, does that mean you're interested in patient concierge position? Well, I, I, I you know, you, you, it's a different position. It's a different skill set. You know, are, are you, because next, if the next time there's a position, position, you can apply for that position. But, um, you know, we all think we're valuable, but, but the reality is sales drives every business. Sales and marketing. You know, I mean, the old saying, right? The CEOs all hate marketing because they, they know that half of the marketing works. They just don't know what half. But, but it is a very integral part. And, and one of the things that's changed since, uh, you know, you and I worked together, I've realized how important, uh, how important marketing is now, you know, um, and, uh, and having good, good marketing. And I got to tell you, you know, you're very ethical, but there's a lot of, and I'm going to say this because I've known you for a long time and I know you to be a very honest person, but, you know, there, especially in the digital space, there are so many unethical people out there uh, trying to profess to be, you know, marketers. And promising you so many patients every month, you won't even be able to take lunch. And I'm so tired of the 
over the overpromising and underdeliver deliver because then it affects all of us. I know that it takes persistence to grow a practice and it's well, not an overnight and it's not a one hit wonder. And you can try that, but, well, but you're going to end up doing it. You have to get the fundamentals in place. Well, we, we, you know, you know Catherine, about 2015, I realized that um, I had too much responsibility on my plate for my other associates and partners. And, and if I wanted to build the team, I needed to get more professional in my marketing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I made an incredible mistake. Mm-hmm. I hired, and I got to tell you, it called us, cost us multiple. I don't even want to tell you what it cost us. Multiple, mm-hmm. multiple, okay, six figures. Oh, my to God. This, to this group that was going to take over everything, including mm-hmm. social. And they professed themselves to be incredible, like really incredible, okay? And they were an incredible disaster. <laughs> a year later, I, I, our revenue dropped 25%. They had oh, us totally locked up on everything. They totally overpromised and underdelivered. And um, I don't know, he did, you know, all I know is they were an incredible disaster. Um, How long did it take for you to figure out that things were going sideways? Because it's not even just the money, it's the time that you're well, losing. Actually, you make a really good point. So we had, so, and I, you know, these are people that you and I have shared the podium with. Okay. Mm. And I'm, I'm disgusted at mm. how they took advantage of us. Um, they didn't. So the first, we had someone who'd been with for 12 years and um, again, you know, someone I like actually. And I had, I had to come to Jesus conversation with them in 2015. And I said, you got one year. And by the way, I'm not afraid to spend money. Okay. I'm not afraid, but I need, and we put, you know, we put someone on holding, holding it accountable and see whatever. And, and all they were interested in selling us more shit, selling us more shit and bigger programs and whatever. And the reality was they didn't deliver. And at the end of that year, um, at the end of that year, I had a, another come to Jesus conversation because we, when we got rid of them, it took us six months to get our website back to get, and, and, and I actually got on the phone with him. Okay. And I said, Robert, you and I are going to be on the podium in about three months. And I'd hope not to take this out on the podium to let <laughs> people know what a freaking shyster you guys are. Okay. And I don't need to say last names, but you can do, do, do the math. So then we ended up going to another group that was, um, recommended by you know a consultant i have a ton of respect for and they were they did a nice job designing website but they didn't they didn't know seo you right. know and and that was another year of a slow screw we got so then i think we were we were ripe to go with someone big who had, i i was like look let's throw some serious money at this we brought these people on um and it was a, it was an incredible disaster. That's all I can say. Uh, and it was we spent north of like three hundred thousand dollars on oh, them man. over a year, and our numbers were down. They they over they over delivered. We actually took we hired someone, brought them in house. They and they because we had this big operation, but they locked up sh- and they were just not getting their work done. And they had put bring in new. And you know what I realized was. I talk about this with professionals. They knew how to sell, but they didn't know how to run a business. So they were having their share of turnover, you know, and they were, you know, we're in, we have four offices all over the world. You know who I'm talking about, right? And so 
we, you know, they were having a churn on their account executives and people, and the numbers were not changing. The SEO was terrible. And, and here's the other thing I learned about it is everybody, it was what I called the blame game. The last mm-hmm. people did this and they have all the broken links. And the last two years, we, we brought it all pretty much in house. We realized that social media has to be done in house. How can somebody represent me? Okay. People don't just want to say buy your shit, buy your shit. Um, and then outsource things like SEO or some of the things that you do. Um, but now we have it all. We don't have anything independent on one or dependent on one person. But I didn't realize how important it was to her. And now I have I got a responsibility. I got a lot of doctors here. But we we ended up bringing someone in-house who just did the Saratoga hair transplant site. And honest to goodness, the next month, the leads were gone, growing. You know, and it was because this, these people had us so locked up. And, and it, when I see them at the meeting, I can't even look at them because – and what I really want to do is is make it public so that they can't exploit or take advantage of someone again. But I'm like, you know what? We lost two years with those clowns. Right. Two years. And it was uh, – and every meeting, it was like the same thing over and over. And I wasn't at the meetings, but my team was. But um, So I realize the importance of marketing, but I realize there are not, not everyone is, is as ethical as you are. They must disgust you because you see these people at the meetings and they're on the podium and they're just selling themselves and, you know, you know the quality of their work. Well, I definitely know the difference between um, sales and marketing and actually executing what you what you sold and marketed. You know, there's a really big difference there. And I've also, this thing about outsourcing, it's getting so much more popular to outsource because you can't be everything to everybody. So you hand it off to the experts. But if you hand it off to the wrong expert, well, look what happens. You lose time and money and then you're cheating. Well, and then you, well, no wonder you're a control freak because every time you let it go. Right. All hell breaks out, but there's the accountability. You gotta hold everybody accountable. No, so somebody I, in your office no. needs to hold that person accountable. Well, that's what, sure we, that's what we have now, and I think that you know we have this economy of scale where we can we can put the resource it to, toward. But the, but the average person out there, one person show guy has been in practice or woman been in practice 10, 12 years, need to find people like you where they can outsource this sort of thing. Uh, and and with someone who's honest, because they, you you don't have the economy of scale that we do or the revenue to work with that we do now, you know. But I got to tell you this: that has been you know that's been one of my biggest challenges um, since I've been a and you know part of it is I don't I'm not I'm I rather like fly under the radar. You know that about me. I'm not one who wants to see my name all over things. But the um, so I, I've never really enjoyed you know as I say to people. I, you know, my generation got on the podium and, and spoke and did humanitarian things because it was the it was the right thing to do. And you know, a lot of younger people, it's all about the photo op for Instagram. You know, so it's um, but it made me realize we can't ignore you can't ignore the marketing thing. You you just can't. I mean, if there was someone, you know, if you could solve that, but. One of the challenges is physicians are not willing to put the put the the appropriate time and resources into it either, though. Would you agree? Right. Here, well, you know what's gotten worse, so thanks to the social here. media, it, it takes the surgeon to market themselves. Like you need the surgeon to be the the material, and that's the not content. helping because now you're a surgeon and you're a content maker and you're a 
um, uh, you know, a marketer yeah. and a, a, I mean, a what we, and a leader and a visionary. And yeah. oh, dear God. Well, one of the things that we do now is I have, we have a room that we completely fed up. It's got, you know, five of these, it's a really cool marketing room. It's got the five of the desks that go up and down and we have a bank of interns and, you know, and, and, you know, so we have someone over them, but the bank of interns, they work 15 hours and, and their job is to take the content for the doctors and get it out there. But what I, oh, as I say to, as I say to my, as I say to my doc, so you guys can't expect them to do, people don't just want to see buy my shit, buy my shit, buy my shit, right? They want to get to know Dr. Slaughter. They want to get yeah. to know his family. They want to see your personality. They want to see the humorous side of you and that you're, that you're humble and getting that content out there in a respectful way. And it's not going to happen overnight is, is gotta be an organic homegrown method where the doctor's involved. You, and, you know, and, and, and shame on these incredibly terrible people who told us they could take our social media. You can't, I correct me if I'm wrong. If the doctor's not involved and you're not getting, you're not going to be able to make up content and grow someone's Instagram. Right. It's so inauthentic. You can see it from a mile away. There's no personality, yeah. no emotion to it. So, I mean, we all do it for other practices, but it's not, it's not, a, I don't call that marketing. I, I don't no, I call it I mean, it's, something I you don't want to do. Social media is one piece of it, but social media yeah. is meant to be social. Yeah. Okay. People don't, again, don't just want to see my, my, my one partner, you know, he couldn't, couldn't understand why his Instagram wasn't growing, right? And, and we said, uh, you know, people don't just want to see breast dog, breast dog, breast dog. Breast. They want to get to know you. And by the way, when you're just throwing, you know, body stuff out there all the time, there are some people are going to click off because they don't want to put that shit showing up in their feed. Right. right? So, you, you know, understanding, but we realize now that has to be done in-house. And one of the things I, you know, I, I say to my colleagues here is like, you guys without, I used to say this at the AFPRS meetings, we, you know, the PR firm, God bless them, um, the firms we had over the years, and they would, <clears throat> they would come to me because I was sympathetic and I used to talk to my colleagues and I say, guys, you can't expect the PR firm to deliver us for us if we're not giving them content. Yeah. Well, they're not improving our whatever. We give them nothing. Well, but that's that's the secret. The successful practice figures out how to outsource what they're not good at so they can have time to do what they now need to get good at, which is if you're going to do social media, you've got to you got to figure that out now. You need new skills that you didn't need before. That's for sure. I mean, um, so I know you have to go pretty soon, but would you just tell me like three nuggets that like all the years that you've been at this, what, what things have made the biggest difference for you? I know like that one, like staff is not an, an overhead expense. They're an asset. Another one might be, um, that, that's, that's, that's a, that's a really important one. Okay. Um, and like patients for life. I think you, you feel strongly about that as yeah, well. And that's what you call yeah. it the med spot. You can't do this one off thing as well as you used to, well, we um, do, you know, we quote you, Catherine, because when people say, oh, you know, my patients don't crawl across town, there they go, there's one, they just left, right? And so, you know, we actually, there's a, we're now, we are now, well, here's another pearl. Um, we just went through this exercise about a year and a half ago. There's a book called The um, uh, the Customer of the Future. I'm trying to remember the author's name. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, no, it's phenomenal, phenomenal. The okay. woman, the woman, the customer of the future. And basically I'll summarize the, the book in about 30 seconds here, but what we are now is 
patient customer centric as you could possibly be. And what she talked about, which is what's brilliant of it, because this book was written before COVID and then mm-hmm. COVID happened. And as I was reading, it is more relevant now with COVID than it ever has been. By the way, they're not comparing you to your, your competitor down the street. The customer's comparing you to Amazon. Okay. The the mm-hmm. frictionless customer experience. And so we're obsessed with the customer experience now. We thought we were product innovation. We all thought we were innovators. The patients don't give a damn about Dr. Williams' credentials. They want to know how you feel, right? So one ask or you know, one pearl would be you know, it's all about it's all about the people and the culture. Mm-hmm. Um and it's all about your customers. It's not about you. Um, and then just, you know, changing your mindset, I think is a big one or adopting the mindset of understanding that, are you trying to grow a business or are you growing a lifestyle around you? And if you want to be deliberate, you have to put the time and the energy in the work and spend the, the resources on doing that. You know, physicians are very, uh, cheap on wanting to invest in their business, but they have no problem going out and buying brand new Mercedes. For sure. You know, and um, you know what I'm talking about because you deal with it every day. You know, try to get you know five thousand dollars out of a doctor. You know, but but they have no, but they have no problem. Do you know what you know what I see? See what I wear for a watch? Nothing. Okay, oh. I got friends who got these all these fancy watches. I'm like, what do you want that for? Yeah, watch collection. Yeah, I got to worry about the damn thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sure. um, look, I appreciate you letting me chat with you. Um, sure. as, as always, it's always an honor, Catherine. And, um, you know, I have a ton of respect for you and what you've accomplished. Thank you. Um, you know, I, uh, so tell me, how would they get a hold of you? If somebody does want to uh, talk with you or get into your world, how would they do that? Go through, I have a website that has a bunch of podcasts on it and it's uh, Dr. Edwin Williams.com. Uh, and they just shoot us an email through there. Um, you know, through that website and, um, Again, it's always an honor talking to you. I, I, you know, you've been in the industry, you know it as well as anyone. Um, and I know you can help, you know, help people out because you've been there. I, my recommendation to someone younger, as far as, you know, is to outsource, you know, invest in your team and then, and outsource the things that you, you're not going to be good at because you can't do it all and try to be very deliberate on what you're doing as far as running a business and making a business. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. It's always a pleasure. I hope to see you at a meeting coming up soon. I'm sure we will. Yeah. All right, Catherine. We'll see you. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Everybody, thanks so much for...